This is Chuck Wilson on Sports, featuring professional and amateur athletes, coaches at all levels, parents, educators, officials, and others, sharing insight and perspective from the playing field and discussing issues that impact the game. Chuck Wilson on Sports and our Peer into Character Conversations are presented by Evenfield, a recognized nonprofit organization cultivating integrity, life skills, and leadership through sports. Now, here's Chuck. Today, we're exploring strength training and conditioning for middle school and high school athletes. Our guest is Andy Procopio, founder of the AMP Training Center in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, that works with individuals and teams from early teens through college and beyond. Andy has a master's degree in exercise science and has studied resistance training on adolescent athletes. Our topics include what movement and strength training does for young athletes, relative age effect in youth sports, and what parents should consider when thinking about whether to have their child repeat a grade, the importance of developmental age in evaluating performance, the role of unstructured play in developing early athleticism, and the two biggest misconceptions that parents have about strength and conditioning programs. As we begin our conversation, Andy Procopio pointed to interpersonal relationships as the key to AMP's approach. We're a strength conditioning facility. We train athletes, but what we've learned over the past couple of years is we've become so much more than that. We basically become a, a guide for a lot of these athletes because we're not a coach, we're not a parent, we're not a teacher. So we're not talking about grades and giving athletes grades that are going to keep them off a of field. We're not talking about you know, performance where you didn't perform well so you might be sitting on the bench or you didn't do this or you're getting cut from the team. And we're not punishing or, or making rules with these athletes like their parents. So we have a really interesting role that we play in the life of a young athlete. We've talked about it a lot as a team and we said we take this very seriously, this opportunity to become something like a mentor for young athletes. So our guiding principle is build relationships and trust and keep things simple so we cannot add stress to an athlete because of everything they're dealing with. What are the goals of the various programs? Everything we do is, is foundational strength. So what we say is we're trying to build an athlete that can deliver on whatever demands their sport might require. So if you come through our doors, you're going to walk in and everyone's going to follow the same goal of building a body that is going to be resilient for performance. And I think that it doesn't really need to get much more complicated than that. How we progress it and where we go is going to change throughout the experience and the physical maturity. So if you come in the door and you're a middle school athlete, we have a goal here. Our goal is to just build a foundation of a body that is strong so we can bring that to the next level. And as we go with the athletes, we try to make them progress from strength to speed and power onto more specific things. What initially are the mindset of the athletes that come in? And I imagine it differs somewhat by age, but what do you see? Every single kid that walks through our door has a different you know, preconception of what it's going to be. When we talk about the youngest athletes, many of these athletes do not know why they're there. Right? So the mindset's really hard to figure out. They're, they're there because someone told them to, their parents told them to come to the gym, 
or a doctor referred them to us because they had an injury or they had some type of chronic problem. So the mindsets are hard to pinpoint because it really, it really depends. When we're talking about older athletes, more mature athletes who have a little more experience, the mindsets are pretty simple. It's they're coming in for a specific purpose and they want us to help them with that purpose. But if, if we're focusing on some younger athletes, mindsets are all over the board. Some kids are nervous, some kids are excited. Some kids think they know what it's going to be. Some kids have no clue what it's going to be. And it's really interesting. So I can't nail down what a specific mindset that we see on a daily basis is. I think one of the interesting things that you must run into is figuring out what's developmentally appropriate. You get all the biomarkers and you get the physiological stages that various kids go through and so on. What's kind of the way that you measure that up front? How do you match up kids with the kind of program that'll work best for them? So with our younger athletes, we want to focus on higher volume, simple movements that are going to build some foundational strength in their bodies. So we take all of our middle school athletes and bring them in and say, okay, here's our focus. We're going to do these types of warm-up activities. We're going to try to have some fun because if we go back to the whole mindset conversation is these kids don't know why they're there. So if we start to, to push them into this, here's this rigid thing you need to do and these rigid men, you don't know why they're, you're doing them, it's going to get complicated. So, so we bring all the athletes in, we try to have some fun and build some basic movement competencies. So speed development, some you know, jumping and deceleration activities, some things where they're going to start to learn how to move their body through space and where they should be. Then we bring them into some basic strength movements that we understand to be safe and productive for their bodies. So keeping it simple with basic exercises, like we might teach kids how to squat and how to bend and lunge and push and pull and these basic movements that don't actually translate directly into sport performance, but build their body to be a little more strong, build their bones to be literally thicker to have stronger bones, tougher ligaments, that across the board is appropriate for middle school age athletes, for young teenage athletes. Some of the things we look for are overstress. And that's where we say, all right, well, what's going on? And this is a case by case thing. If you have a young athlete, it's never going to be, all right, this 12 year old and this 13 year old and this 14 year old, all are going to be growing at the same rate. They're not all going to be adapting at the same rate. They're going to be on very different levels of the curve of what they understand, how to move, and, and where that, you know, we have some 12-year-olds who are unbelievably athletic. Yeah. We have some 12-year-olds who look like they probably shouldn't be playing sports. By the time they're 15, those two groups might not be the same. So, so developmentally, we work on individual relationships, so getting feedback from the athletes. How does your body feel right now? What are you going through? If we want to talk about you know, the science or the biomarkers, one of the big factors is peak growth. Right. So what we do with our younger athletes is we just measure their height. We look at their height, we see when they're growing, and when they're growing faster than other points in the year, we might back off some of the volume of what we're doing. We might recommend that they back off some of their intensity or volumes of practices and sport performance. But other than that, what we understand about the young athletes is their bodies respond really well to basic stimulus and they adapt pretty quickly. So if we load them a little bit with basic exercises, their bodies get stronger and more resilient. What we watch for is if they're starting to have those rapid points of growth, you take a middle school boy 
who just grew five inches in the past year, he's going to be dealing with some tissue pain. He's going to be dealing with some problems that he might not be dealing with six months later. He might not have been dealing with six months before. And we just adjust and adapt. Critical to motivation, obviously, is just what you talked about earlier. And that's this ability to be able to build confidence and trust in what you're doing. How intentional is that on your part? How do you go about it? I think that building trust is just a simple, genuine thing. It's hard to teach, but something that should be understood. And when we select coaches or we select organizations, one of the things we talk about is who do we put with young athletes? And if you look at my staff and my team of coaches, there's a certain thing I look for in everybody. And it's not being great understanding exercise physiology or understanding the science or being able to regurgitate something from a book. But I'm looking for someone who genuinely is just a nice, cool person to be around. And, and we talk about it like it's a joke, but the reality is all of my coaches in the gym are cool and the kids like them. And if you start with that, now you take people who just genuinely are interested in others, who genuinely like being around people and have a little bit of kid themselves still in them. We build trust by just genuinely being interested in the athletes and hanging out with them and having conversations. So if you come in our gym, it might seem like an unorganized atmosphere and environment because there's a lot of side conversations going on. There's a lot of kids running around and hanging out. But what you'll notice is there are deep, strong relationships between the athletes and our coaches. There's trust that's been built because they just enjoy being around each other. So I guess to answer that question, I think for us it's just, do you genuinely care about others and are you fun to be around? And if you can do those things, kids will gravitate. Kids will come and they'll tell their friends and then you can get into that, that relationship aspect that I was talking about before, which is serving as a mentor that's out of that normal realm of being a parent, a coach, or a teacher. So that's, that's our approach is just be fun and, and be cool and be nice. And I think it's pretty easy. You train some teams. A lot of what you're doing is, is uh, team training. What are the advantages? What are the challenges? <laughs> team training is complicated. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We have a few aspects or a few programs, I guess, we follow at the gym. And, and one of them is our team training program, and one of them is what's called our open sports performance program. And what we see is there's a, a huge dynamic shift between team training and the individual sports performance, which it's still in groups, but the team training dynamic is interesting because, and it's more complicated, because there's a comfort level involved. So let's say we have a team of 24 athletes who come in the gym together. They all know each other. There's a hierarchy of who's who, who's cool and who's not, who's good and who's not, who's the coach's favorite and who's not. And that's been established. These kids have been playing together. They know each other. So they come into our environment, and that's already there. And for us as coaches, that's a hard, that's a hard egg to crack. It's interesting because there's this level of comfort with the athletes where they can almost tune us out and be in their comfort zone and trying to change the dynamic and trying to get the athletes to work together and forget about those things is really complicated. So team training is very interesting because of those, I don't know what you call them, pre, predetermined dynamics, predetermined team dynamics. And those things can be leveraged 
in a bad way with the wrong people in charge. And I'm sure the right people can probably try to change that dynamic and use it to build culture. For us, it's something that is really complicated. On the other hand, if we have a group of 12 athletes who come in who are all from different places, all from different backgrounds, all play different sports, there's some girls, there's some guys, whatever it is, that dynamic's really easy because they're all dialed in on one thing, which is us. We become the focal point of that group because they don't know each other. As they get to know each other over the course of a season, you'll see that dynamic shift a little more. But it's, it's really interesting because it's something we need to talk about. How do you work with the team effectively so you can use that pre-existing dynamic to build a stronger team? Right. It's, it's, it's tough. What about the competitive versus cooperative? Is there a place for cooperative drills? Because one of the things we really believe in, especially at younger ages, developmentally, they're so different. They're at such different stages, and sometimes having the one kid that might be more advanced physically helping a younger one on the team to be able to learn a skill, there's a real feedback loop that can be very effective for both. And I'm wondering, is that dynamic at all present? That dynamic is absolutely present, especially with young athletes. Like I said before, you could have four 12-year-olds and all four of them are at completely different stages of their physical maturity, their skill maturity. So it's really interesting. Now, sometimes that dynamic can work. Maybe we could do a little better job of pushing that. We do partner work. The problem is it's we try to push everyone to their right. capacity. That's hard because the athlete that is at the more advanced, they've got to see what's in it for them. You know, they're there to improve themselves, not necessarily somebody else. But in a team dynamic, when it's going to help the team perform better. It is interesting. If we look back at the team training, so we have one team. It's a field hockey team. They've been training with us for over 10 years, since before AMP Training Center even existed. And what we do with them, we pair one of the upperclassmen with one of the, the newer athletes and say, all right, each upperclassman is responsible for one or two of the sophomores. We don't have the freshmen participating. And their job is to help us as coaches not only teach the younger kids what they're doing, but to actually build a relationship and build comfort. So, you know, if, if you walk in a gym and we have 24 athletes in the gym and you know, eight of them have never been in the place before, they don't know what's going on, they're yeah. nervous. Yeah. We can ease our jobs by saying, okay, upperclassmen, you're responsible for one of these kids. You're going to help them make sure they understand this stuff. What you see happen there is you build this, it's not like a full mentor relationship, but you build this, this dialed-in mentality of, well, one of the seniors who's you know, a starter, who's good, who's this or that, is going to help me. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to focus a little more because I want them to like me. I want them to think I'm cool. I want to show them how good I am. We use that excitement to help the athletes dial in on what we're trying to get them to do. And that's, that's something we can do in the team training environment that we don't do as much in, on the other side. Let me ask you about physical literacy and the long-term athlete development program, the ADM model in the United States. But this idea that before those kids get to you, in that six to eight and maybe six to nine for the boys, that age group, 
if we can help these kids develop some athleticism, just normal fundamental movement skills, fundamental motor skills, mm -hmm. right? You mentioned it before, just getting some form of knowing how to jump, how to run. Uh, look at the different styles when kids are young of how they run. Yep. Just learning how to use your body a little bit better. And I would make the argument without having the knowledge that you do from a training standpoint that the more that we can increase a child's overall athleticism, just the way they, they feel about being able to move their body, and if we can get them to develop some balance, to develop some agility, all of these things go together to give them some confidence, right? They're going to gain confidence, oh, yes. competence as well, so that if you can get that done before you start to introduce sports-specific skills, it seems to me that those are transferable skills that are going to help an athlete in whatever they do. What are your thoughts oh, on no that? Oh, no question. I hope I'm getting this right. I'm going to throw a name out there. There's a place in outside Boston called Achieve Performance, I believe. I wish I could remember the guy's name right now who runs it. But what they do is really interesting. So the biggest thing we see happen with the younger athletes is we have this conversation over and over again. A parent will come to like, oh, you know, Johnny's playing so well now. You guys have really you know, made him such a better athlete. And I always laugh. I'm like, we didn't do anything. He's more confident now. And he's going out there and he's not thinking so much and he's just playing confidently. Now you're seeing what can happen when someone's comfortable in a situation and doesn't think and just goes for it. And so, so going back to what I was talking about with achieved performance, the only physical activity a lot of our young athletes do is practice. Yeah. They have baseball practice. They have soccer practice. And that is it. And then when they're not at practice, they're at home studying or playing video games. Yeah. They don't have this unstructured play anymore. So what you're seeing is facilities like Achieve, which are basically doing unstructured play. They set up obstacle courses and have kids run through the gym and jump, and they might set up rings and say, okay, jump from this ring to this ring to this ring. And what they're doing is they're teaching movement competency through games. Yeah. And what that's doing is it's teaching children how to move. It's teaching them to control their body in space. It's making them physically aware and it's building stronger, confident athletes, but not just athletes. If we want to take it in another direction, it's building stronger, confident people. And that's where we need to see these athletes go in this direction. If your whole physical activity revolves around just baseball practice, and you start to get up to a point where 9, 10, 11, 12, you start to be more self-aware, and you start to notice, well, that kid's way better than I am. And this, it can kill your confidence, and stop you in your tracks and probably destroy careers by 12 years old. And that's crazy. But if you've developed this physical competency at a younger age where you're confident and comfortable and know where you're at, it's just a different thing. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of use to this whole unstructured build athletes through play and get them to the point where they're confident before we start hammering them with practice only and competition only. The free play idea, unstructured, makes so much sense. Kids have so much fun. And, I would argue, conflict resolution. It, they work yes. out their own yes. issues, right? They don't have some adult exactly. trying to adjudicate every little thing that goes on. They make up their own rules, and they work out their own problems. 
And I just think that gives them so much more confidence that they're going to be able to handle interpersonal relationships that are not being handled by an adult. I, I talk about it all the time, we just watch my daughters. I have a three and a five-year-old, and you know, some parents will look at me sometimes, especially when they're in the gym, and they'll be arguing, yelling at each other, and, and they'll say, you know what your daughters are doing? They'll say, yes, I call that conflict resolution. They're figuring out how to solve this problem that's going on between them, and I think that Adults have come in and, and structured everything for everyone. And they mean well, but it's, we see the effects of it every day. We have crazy emotional kids who, if they don't do something perfect the minute they walk in the door, they're upset or terrified, and, and it's pretty crazy. We're going to get to parents in a couple of minutes, but the chronological age versus developmental age, which you mentioned, you can take a 12-year-old, and physically, that 12-year-old could be, what, 9 or 10, could also be 13, 14, mm -hmm. 15 years of age. That's enormous, and it has real social consequences. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know what the real answer is. Bio-banding's been looked at as, you know, one answer. Well, trying to put developmentally aged kids together, at least for some of the time that they're going to compete, rather than just chronological age. And, and we run into this whole relative age issue. Our family is a perfect example. I have three sons. We've got three. Our two younger sons, both were born on July 31st. In Connecticut, where they were growing up, the start date was August 1st. So both of them were the youngest on every single team they played on. Yep. That has consequences. Absolutely. When every single kid, now listen, it's good to play against people that are better than you are. That's how you can get better. But if every single kid has months of development ahead of you and you don't happen to be an early developing kid, that has consequences. This is why I get frustrated at the idea, Andy, that we are excluding kids so early in the process that by 10, 11, 12 years old, we've given that signal to kids, oh, you're not an athlete, you're not gonna be any good, and they go away before they've gone through puberty, and it's another issue, puberty happening earlier now. But what are your thoughts on just being able to look at the big picture and being able to be patient and staying with the process? We have this conversation a lot with parents. You're seeing people begin to self-remedy it, and I don't know if it's a good thing or not, the amount of athletes who are being held, held back, back yeah. who are starting kindergarten yeah. late or, or repeating kindergarten, yeah. we see a lot now. The new, new trend we're seeing is repeating eighth grade. We have had yeah. so many athletes who have repeated eighth grade. Yeah. Uh, we're also seeing, you know, you see the PGs, but not even as much of the PGs anymore as, as you see reclassing. Kids yeah. going to a different school to reclass yeah. because they're physically behind or they were an early birthday or, or whatever it is. That people are beginning to self-remedy that. Yeah. I don't know if that's a great solution or not. I, I, we've talked about it with my daughter. My daughter's a June birthday. And I'm looking like, geez, like she's going to be one of the younger kids. But she's so advanced. Right. She's smart. She's physically, Levels. I couldn't imagine ever saying, you know what? Let's start first grade late. Yeah. And it's just crazy to me. But so we think about these examples all the time. And, and what I talk about on our end is, we look at those, those markers of developing athleticism 
more than we look at the physical development. And I can think of an athlete we worked with who was a seventh grader who used to be hitting home runs all the time. And everyone's like, oh, my God, he's such a great baseball player. Like, well, he's a great baseball player because he's a 13-year-old in the body of an 18-year-old. Let's see if he's still a great baseball player when he's 16 and 17. And it's not, you know, it's almost unfair to look at because it's like, well, we're almost, from our standpoint, we almost write that kid off and say, well, he's better because of his early physical development. Well, maybe he is just a talented athlete. And on the other end, I think of a hockey player we have who's always been specifically way more talented than all of his peers, even though he was small and a late developer. And you look at that, can you say, okay, I want the athlete who is not yet physically developed, but skill-wise can hang with all of his peers who are physically developed. And, and it's a conversation we have a lot, and I don't know if there's a remedy. I think what we do is socially, we just say, you know, hey, your kid is right on track for where they should be athletically. They're doing the right things, they move well. They may be a little behind in physical development, but once everyone's 16, it will all be okay. And, and that's one of the things, we just kind of try to have a conversation, but I don't know, or we are not privy to any good strategy to deal with that. Andy, when I was growing up, being a multi-sport athlete, that's what you wanted. Yep. You wanted to be able to play multiple sports. It allowed you to kind of stretch your abilities, and we've seen all the studies now, there's less burnout. There are fewer sport-related injuries, chronic injuries and overuse injuries. Uh, there's so many advantages to it, but it's also a lot of pressure to specialize early. Yeah, now, look, we know topic. that there are early specialization sports, right? Yes. We, we know. I mean, figure skating, diving, uh, gymnastics, gymnastics, right? So some of the acrobatic sports, you, you have to get started early because it's early age sport. On the flip side, the evidence seems to indicate that kids aren't at all behind the eight ball by starting later in other sports, especially if they're developing these transferable skills from one sport to another. And there is a body of coaches now that prefer the multi-sport to the athlete who played just one sport for quite a long time. So what are you seeing? What's kind of your thought? Because this specialization, a lot of pressure. This is an interesting conversation. I've been talking about this a lot lately. I heard something on a podcast the other day that made me think, and it was a great point. It was the first time I've heard an exercise physiologist make an argument for sports specialization. And he, he wasn't arguing that it's a good thing, but he was almost arguing that it's, it's become necessary because of society. So I have a lot of thoughts on that. Anecdotally, everyone will say, well, this professional athlete you know, was a multi-sport athlete and they were a star in football and a star in baseball and a star in basketball and they could be professional in anything. The anecdote is it's because they were a multi-sport athlete. And I would tend to agree with that. And what you said, I think, is, is right on point, which is if you can develop movement competencies, and that's where we go back to the whole ninja course or, or obstacle course stuff. And you know, we could always name the, the one or two kids who we always say, give them a stick or a ball and they're going to be better than you. They can cross paths however they want. So you'd say anyone who can build competencies in multiple sports is going to be at an advantage as we get older because their body is going to be more well-rounded. Their performance is going to be more well-rounded. And that's what we see over and over and over again. You can't argue with the statistics. But society has driven this other side 
of the whole like 10,000 hour rule of to be an expert in a sport, you have to have spent X amount of hours practicing that sport. So if you look at it from that side, it's really interesting to think about. So let's say my daughter plays soccer and my rules are you play your sport in the season. You play soccer in the fall, you play basketball, hockey, gymnastics in the winter, you play lacrosse, baseball, whatever, in the spring, and that's how it goes. Those, you, know, you stick with your seasons and you play one sport in each season and that's it. Well, so let's take my daughter who plays soccer in the fall. And then eight of her peers right. also play soccer in the fall, but then they play soccer in the winter and they play soccer in the spring and they play soccer over the summer. And then my daughter who's been doing other things comes back around in the fall and in one year, all of her peers have flown past her. And you say, well, what happened? So my daughter that might be a physically capable athlete is now behind in soccer. And what we're seeing a lot of is these athletes are getting so much better. I was a lacrosse player and, and we talked about, I was watching a lacrosse practice the other day. I said, I would never even make a team in this environment. These kids are so good. And, and one of the coaches who I work with was like, well, they have a lacrosse stick in their hand 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're always playing this sport. They've developed so much quicker. And so it comes back to that argument of my daughter, even though she might grow up to be a well-rounded, physically capable athlete, she may be behind the eight ball in soccer because all of her peers over the years that they were playing club and this and that, they got so much more experience, specific skill experience, scenario recognition, that they're better than her. And she may be able to adapt to certain things on the field, but she just doesn't have that same level of skill in that sport. And I'm not necessarily arguing that we should push everyone into early sports specialization. What I'm saying is we've almost created this environment where it almost is a necessity. And what I propose, or at least what we talk about is, I don't endorse that, and I never will, but if you're going to go that route, let's talk about how to do it safely. So that's kind of what the discussion we have with parents is, you need to make sure we're taking care of this body and we're not overdoing it. Mental burnout, we can't do anything about that. If you're playing a sport year-round all the time, it's hard. There is a time and place where we do recommend athletes specialize if they're much later in their careers and they're finding that playing three high school sports seasons is taking away from their ability to train or practice their sport and they're already going to college. Then we say, okay, you've played soccer and basketball and softball your whole life. Let's take one of those out of the equation over the junior and senior year that you're preparing for college. But that's at a much uh, later that's, time. Right. That's in your middle teens. Exactly. 15, yes. 16. I get it. I'm fine. And especially if it, the impetus is coming from the kid. Like they have a passion exactly. for one particular it, that's sport. Exactly the, Where that's exactly I have a problem is on the preteens and on this early specialization. I mean, look, two of our three kids played travel soccer. Okay. You're required to play two seasons. And you're highly advised to play indoor the in the inside, winter, right? Yep. And the interesting thing I found with this program is as young as U7, U8, the goal of the soccer program was to win. Individual improvement was up to you. Yep. And I'm saying to myself, 
you're putting winning now over development. That means you're going to play all the early developing kids, and anybody who isn't an early developer is going to get limited time because the coach is being judged on a one-loss record, yeah. not on how many kids want to play next year and how many kids got better yeah. for the next year. It seems to me if you're trying to, to create a feed, a feeding system uh, to the upper levels, you're excluding a lot of kids early. Yes. Why would you want to do that? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, well, <laughs> we said we're going to talk about the parents, right? That's an adult ego thing, right? And it's, it's a mindset thing, and it's an un uneducated mindset of, you know, look at the club programs. And I, I always talk about this with parents is, do you judge a club program based on how they're developing the athletes or where they're placing athletes? You know, are they placing athletes in environments that are going to make them successful, or are they placing athletes in places that give them a bigger name? And are they talking about how many championships they've won or their records? And I said, you know, we tell the athletes all the time is, well, they might go to every tournament and win, and they have a name, but are they developing every individual on that program? Again, a lot of this stuff just comes down to conversations. It's the first thing we discussed today, which is how do you build trust in relationships? And, and I think it's taking egos and mindsets in this like race to the top out of things and zeroing in on someone and saying, what's going on? How are you doing? And what can we do to help or make things better right now? And if all the coaches were thinking about that the way we do, I think we'd have a lot of happier and more successful athletes. What's the role of strength and flexibility in reducing and preventing injuries? Depends. That's a complicated question. So maybe five, ten years ago, a lot of strength coaches would always say, we practice injury prevention. And you know, I used to say that too. And then we started listening to some of the smarter people and, and saying, okay, we can't prevent injuries. We cannot prevent anything from happening. We try to practice injury reduction or reduce the risk of injury. And, and that even in itself is really complicated because there's so many variables when it comes to injury. You know, we take ACL injury, for example, and people talk about, well, oh, it's because of strength and this and this person was weak or it's because of hormones or it's because of volume of practice. And ultimately, all of those factors are true, right? Yielding at high speeds is an issue. We try to address those things, but it's not perfect. So when we look back at what we do, we say, what is our goal? Foundational strength development. We are trying to build a body that is going to be resilient to all of those issues. We want to build a body that can answer on the demands of sport. So I believe personally, and obviously I'm biased in this, that the role of strength and conditioning and strength and flexibility and, and movement is it's preparing a body for whatever physical demands sport is going to put on it. I just, last night, a, a father of a, a young athlete, she's 13, she tore her ACL. Um, she started training with us, and that's how she came to us. And he was sending me some videos of her playing lacrosse, and he, was, he sent me one screenshot of her in a position. And it was really interesting because he said, this is what I'm nervous about. She cuts so hard and she pushes into the ground and she had this crazy angle and she's a very capable athlete, but she's put these demands on her body. She's played so much lacrosse without this, the strength and conditioning aspect to, to build a body that can handle those demands. Now, I'm not sitting here saying I necessarily believe that she may not have torn her ACL 
if she had been doing some sports performance training at a younger age or, or getting stronger. But I like to believe that we may have been able to teach her some, some better biomechanical awareness, maybe teach her body to be a little more resilient or a little more, give her a better capability to yield at high speed. So when she puts her foot in the ground and turns her body, it might be a little more capable of doing that. So my take on all of this is if we can keep things simple and make sure the joints move in the range of motion they're supposed to move, but not just, and this is where I'd say like flexibility, in my opinion, is not as important as some of the other aspects, right? The, the idea of flexibility is different than when we talk about mobility or being able to access a range of motion but also being able to stabilize or control within that range of motion, right? So, so if I can, you know, bend my knee like this, well, that's great that I can get my knee there passively, but if some really high-speed forces take my knee there, can I stabilize my knee in, in that range of motion versus just getting my knee to that range of motion? So I believe our job revolves around teaching bodies to not just access positions, but to be able to control speeds and movement in certain positions. So I think we play a huge role. What's the biggest misconception that parents have about strength and conditioning, about a training it's, program? It's pretty simple. There's two. Number one is there's a major difference between fitness and performance training. And I talk about this all the time and it drives me up a wall. And then the second one is, is sport specific, right? So those are two things I deal with constantly. I answer questions about why is my child not sweating and exhausted when they come out of the gym? Or, you know, why is the workout so easy? Oh, it's too easy. It wasn't hard enough. And we say, well, what are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying to make someone sweat and have this, you know, kid who's down on the floor exhausted after a workout? Or are we trying to build control in certain positions and movements? Are we trying to build someone who has, is physically prepared for sport? Or are we trying to be you know, gym class? And, and what I always talk about is what we do when it comes to sports performance or strength and conditioning, we're very specific. We're trying to address specific needs and build movement competencies. We're not just trying to make someone tired. And that's important. And the second thing is this whole idea of sports specificity. And I'm not talking about you know, specialization, but I'm talking about you know, the idea that, well, a baseball player's workout should be completely different from a football player or a hockey player or a lacrosse player or a basketball player and that you know, they need to do movements that mimic their sport. To some extent, that's true because we have to go back to that whole, well, here's some positions you're going to be in on the field and you're going to need to be able to control getting into those positions at high speeds. But, you know, mimicking the movement of a swing isn't necessarily going to make you stronger in that swing. So one of the big misconceptions is what we call sport specificity. Sport specificity happens at practice. Strength and conditioning happens in a weight room, building strong tissue and bones. Those are the two big misconceptions, is the whole idea of fitness versus performance and then sport specificity. A football player, a basketball player, a soccer player, a lacrosse player, surprisingly can all do the same workout and benefit from it. And that's, those are big things. Let me ask you about mental training. Just okay. the mental side of this, the psychological side of this, what are the important things that kids need to be able to develop in terms of the mental skills 
and psychological skills. Mental preparation is gonna come in many shapes and sizes. Every athlete prepares differently. One of our college football players said the other day, he's like, you know, I wanna be so angry before I get out of the locker room, before I go out of the field. I wanna be so angry that I just wanna kill someone and take their head off. And I'm sitting there thinking like, that's the complete opposite way of how I approach things, which was, I wanna be calm and comfortable and know what my job is today and, and dial in on what I need to do going out there. If I'm so angry that I'm gonna go out there and be reckless and make bad decisions and take myself out of the game. And the point of that story, I guess, is to say that it's going to be different for everyone. But one of the things we talk about with, with mental preparation, and we don't do it a ton because honestly we're limited in time, is visualization. Yeah. Right? Is can we teach these athletes how to relax and breathe and dial in on what they need to be focused on and try to tune out all the noise? But that noise is it's getting worse and worse and worse. And, and being a young athlete now, being a young uh, a teenager, an early teenager right now is, is very complicated. And one of our coaches said this the other day, and I thought it was really interesting. He made a great point. He said, when we were young, everyone had bullies, right? We always grew up with bullies. And you had something in school that scared you. You might have pretended to be sick one day so you didn't have to go to school because some kid was going to beat you up or something. And that was, you literally would pretend to be sick so you wouldn't have to go to school to see that kid because being home was safe. Well, now that bully can get to you 24 hours a day. And, and I don't think we understand the levels of stress that that takes on these young athletes. So, so for us, mental preparation comes down to trying to get athletes to build confidence in what they're doing and knowing that they're capable within themselves and that they can play a role on a team and they know what's expected of them without being another stressor. One of our main objectives is to not add stress to an athlete's life. Where is the future of athletic training, strength training, conditioning? Where is it headed? Because there are a lot of really pretty exciting changes. Well, 20 years ago, places like us didn't exist. Or maybe there were a few of them. Now they're on every corner. And now even high schools have strength and conditioning coaches. Athletic performance has become mainstream. It's rapidly moving in the direction of technology, of, of data collection and analytics from a, a physical X's and O's standpoint. But on the other side, it's going in the direction of interpersonal communication. Right. And, and guys like Nick Winkleman and Brett Bartholomew are kind of trying to lead the way on that. And those two have talked so much about communication, interpersonal relationships. They've both written books on it. We've become this resource for parents and for coaches that is, is almost invaluable because we have access to the athletes in a different way than others do. We're moving in a direction where you will see sports performance become part of every organization at every level. I mean, every club organization sends their kids to a place like us. So I think we need to be really careful with how we approach it and understand the heavy responsibility of dealing with young athletes and, and the level of impact we have on them. But I think the two ways this is going is everybody's going to be using technology and analytics and already are, and we're moving there very fast. But the other thing is coaches are starting to get better at the interpersonal communication and building relationships, and, I, and I'm interested to see where that goes. Andy, we definitely have to do this again. This was really, really interesting. Thanks so much for taking the Thank time. Thank you for having me. 
Andy Procopio is founder and director of AMP Training Center in Rhode Island. Find out more at ampfitri.com. For more information about Achieve Performance Training in Massachusetts, go to achieveperformance.training. This presentation was written and produced by Chuck Wilson. Post-production editing and graphics by Chris Gemma. Narration music by Sound Design, licensed through premiumbeat.com. Theme music by Patrick Runblad, also licensed through premiumbeat.com. Our thanks to Professor Mike Davis and his digital production class at New England Institute of Technology for the recording of this interview. The recording took place at New England Tech's East Greenwich, Rhode Island campus. We also thank Evenfield's board of directors and the following in particular for their support of Evenfield's mission and this multimedia production. Thomas J. Scala, the John and Jessica Pincus Family Fund, and highly regarded businesses in Rhode Island, the Virtus Group, Trusted advisors led by Mark Cruz providing an array of comprehensive financial planning services for families and businesses. Epic Promotions, the Kudo family has four decades of experience in printing, branding, and marketing. Thank you, Barry, Adam, and Keith. Graphic Innovations, a New England leader in large format printing, graphics, and vehicle wraps. Our thanks to Jim Larkin and his team. We also appreciate the support of Sheehan & Associates, providing small business legal services in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Thank you, Megan Sheehan. Simply J Bookkeeping and Consulting, a Massachusetts-based bookkeeping, accounting, coaching, and advisory firm that partners with organizations whose mission is to serve people and their well-being. Our thanks to Jillian Johnson. Chuck Wilson on sports and our peer into character conversations are presented by Evenfield, promoting integrity, life skills, and leadership through sports. If you enjoyed this program, please like us on Facebook and subscribe to this channel. And if you believe our content has value and you're in position to support us, your donation of any amount, big or small, would be appreciated. Evenfield is a recognized 501c3 nonprofit organization, and donations to Evenfield are tax deductible to the full extent allowed by law. You can learn more about our organization at evenfield.org. I'm Mark Kestisher. And I'm Chuck Wilson. Let's inspire kids to exhibit competitive courage and to understand that the way you compete, achieve goals, interact with people, and do everything else in life shows the world how you value character and respect for others. Let's encourage each of them to be a person of integrity who is worthy of trust on and off the field. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.